And today we're going to be looking in part four of our series, Getting to Know the Holy Spirit at the Spirit-Filled Christian Life. But before we even touch that, I wanted to zoom back to last week. Um, Isaac Hinkle had asked a really good question, and I didn't have a, a quick answer, so I did a little bit of digging this week and found um, just something that I wanted you all to have just as a reference. So this first uh, section will look at the biblical criteria of an apostle. What is an apostle? We use that term, we're familiar with that term being a biblical term, but we don't necessarily have it honed in in our minds what that is, so what that, that category is. So before we even get into Romans, we'll just briefly uh, consider what is an apostle and a few verses. We won't go into all of them right now, but you can look up at your own time. Uh, first, they, those apostles, were chosen directly by the Lord Jesus. Chosen directly by the Lord Jesus. So that's one criteria of an apostle. Chosen directly by the Lord Jesus. For those of you taking notes, fill in the blanks. That's your first blank. That's a freebie. They're all the, all the freebies, I guess. So uh, second, they were able to perform the signs of an apostle. They were able to perform the signs of an apostle. And we'll touch on this a little bit more next week as we talk about the sign gifts and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So apostles were able to perform the signs of an apostle being authenticated by miraculous signs and wonders and mighty works. And third, they, with... Um, with their own eyes, they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And for this, feel free to turn with me just to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. And I guess we'll start in verse 3 just because it highlights a couple of these. Again, we won't go into all these verses. I encourage you to look at them at your own time if you have any questions about what, in, what it entails to be an apostle. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, so that's Peter, one of the apostles, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, so those that were present, uh, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. There's certainly more we could unpack there, but just wanted to highlight a couple things. One, Jesus appeared to the twelve, therefore they met the criteria of an apostle. But then in verse 7, we see then to all the apostles. So there's a category beyond the twelve when we talk about the apostles. So apostleship wasn't limited just to the 12 disciples and his replacement, although that was a, a, almost like an inner circle of apostleship. There's also the broader category talked about in verse 7, then to all the apostles, those meeting this criteria that they were chosen directly by the Lord Jesus when he appeared to them, then they were able to perform signs, which we see throughout the book of Acts. We talked a little bit about that last week. And then they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ, and that's the criteria that Paul's highlighting in 1 Corinthians 15. So just wanted to touch on that briefly before we jump in to Romans 8. 
Any questions on apostleship? Did that help, Isaac? Great. And hopefully those verses will provide more clarity if you feel so inclined to dig into it. All right, Romans 8. Feel free to turn with me there. This is a glorious chapter in Scripture. This is one of those passages to read over and over and over again and just be refreshed by the salvation we have in Christ and all the implications of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And just so you guys know, we're going to be going through this a little bit more quickly today, and the hope will be that we'll have some time as we break into prayer groups um, at the end to also have some discussion about what we're covering this morning. So we'll kind of fly through a little bit, give an overview of this um, chapter, and then as we break into groups, we'll have some time to unpack and, and think through some application questions and discussion related to these things. But that said, feel free to stop me any point you have questions, and we'll We'll pause and and hit those as we go. So before we read Romans 8, just brief about the context. Paul is unpacking rich spiritual realities to help ground believers that are in Rome. So these are believers in Rome to ground them in the truth of the gospel. In in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, he's talked about condemnation and what sin has brought. In chapters 4 through 5, He's talked about justification and what that entails to be declared righteous before God on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. And then in in chapters 6 through 8, which is we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 6 through 8 with chapter 8, Paul describes sanctification, how the believer is in that process of being made holy. In our passage this morning, we see that Paul is writing the culminating summary of how sanctification works. After this section, he'll go on in Uh, chapters 9 through 11, to talk about Israel's restoration, and then develop all the ways that these realities transform the believer's life in kind of that application section, you could say, of chapters 12 through 15. So as we look at Romans 8, we're considering sanctification, the process, the process, not the moment, the process of a believer being made more and more holy. And as we look, we will see six essential ministries of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Six essential ministries of the indwelling Holy Spirit. With that, we'll read, and we'll read verses 1 through 30. Romans 8, verses 1 through 30. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how, we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you as Father. Even as we just read in this passage, we recognize that that is a result of your work. Lord, as we spend this time digging into your word, I ask that you would be with me, help me to speak clearly and in a way that's able to be followed and that ultimately your word would be burrowed deeply into our hearts, that we would be more and more transformed and more and more able to understand who you are and live rightly in light of a right knowledge of you. I ask that you'd be with us as we study and as we dig into this and just not allow us to leave hardened, but that we would be leaving today softened and more and more malleable to your plans for our lives and a better understanding of all that you've done for us and all that you do for us. We lift this time up to you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So the first essential ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit is his ministry as the Spirit of Freedom. The Spirit of Freedom in verses 1 through 8. We, we read that the law of the Spirit of life. The law of the Spirit of life has done three things for us in these ver first two verses. 
There's now therefore no condemnation. So the spirit of life has removed our condemnation. For those who are in Christ, the spirit of life and spirit of freedom has placed us into Christ, has placed us into Christ, and he has set us free from slavery to the sin-death law, the sin-death law. And the word for law is also the same translation for principle. It doesn't have the same sense of like we think of like bylaws and um, whatever you can think of when you think of laws. You think of people sitting down and legislators and that sort of thing. At least that's what I think of. Um, Or someone breaking the law. But it also has a more general sense of a principle, something that you follow, something that you're you're in, that you're doing. And verse 2 highlights that the spirit of life has set us free from this law, this principle of sin and death that we'll be touching on more as we go throughout this, this lesson. And the next thing we see in verses 5 and 6, jumping down a little bit further, is a contrasting character. We see contrasting conduct, really, and this contrast is going to be developed over these verses. A contract of the, contrast of the spiritual life, the life that's indwelt by the Spirit and living accordingly, and the life that is fleshly, not indwelt by the Spirit and not living accordingly. So there's a contrasting conduct that both comes from and results in a contrasting status. In verse 5, there's those that live according to the flesh, and those that live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, and then their end, in verse 6, to set their mind on flesh is death. So spiritual life, or sorry, fleshly life, fleshly mindedness, ultimately death. But the contrast woven throughout that is spiritual life, spirit mindedness, and that leads to life and peace. We read that at the end of verse 5. Those who live according to the Spirit, according to, along with, aligned with, in the same direction as, according to the Spirit, those individuals set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And the result, end of verse 6, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Paul further unpacks what this distinction is by clarifying what actually flows from life that has a a mind set on the flesh. So that that middle piece in those those arrows, spiritual life, spirit-mindedness, life and peace, fleshly life, flesh-mindedness, death, what that middle one produces, a, a, a mindset fixed on the flesh, we see in 7 through 8. First, we see hostility. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's no peace with God. Hostile to God. There's no peace. There's, it's, it's warring against God. And that hostility, that absence of peace, no peace with God, is because of in verse 7, right, right in the middle of verse 7, for, reason, because of, for it does not submit to God's law. So rebellion is what has caused this hostility. Rebellion, not submitting to God's law. And that rebellion, furthermore, the, the, the unwillingness to submit to God's law, for it does not submit to God's law, this, this mind that's set on the flesh, the reason for that is, in my Bible, semicolon, indeed it cannot. So the reason for this rebellion is because of inability. Inability, it's an incapacity to submit to God's law, all of which results in 
us, the, the flesh-minded person, being displeasing to God. Utter incapacity to live a life that glorifies God. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Utter, utter inability to live a life that glorifies God. So this progression of hostility and rebellion and inability and a life that's ultimately displeasing to God is contrasted. You think of the opposite of all of that as we looked at the previous contrast in verses 5 through 6. Think about the contrast of all of those things. The spirit of life gives us the opposite of each of these, the opposite of each of these. In the spirit, we have what's the opposite of hostility, peace with God. In the Spirit, we have obedience to God's Word, the opposite of rebellion. And in the Holy Spirit and in Christ, we have the opposite of inability, which is the ability to submit to God's will. We actually do have freedom. Again, this is in the category of the, the, the Spirit of freedom. We have the ability to truly follow God and honor Him, ability to submit to God's will. And fourthly, we have power to honor and please the Lord. Rather than being in that state of verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The, the idea for, and, and you've probably all heard a sermon where someone drew out this Greek word and maybe it was not um, applied properly, but the ability word, the I'm able to do something, is the word from which we get our word dynamite. It doesn't mean dynamite, but the ability to do something, the power and the ability to carry something out. That eventually in English came down as dynamite. This verse is not talking about dynamite, but the, the dunamai, I am able to do something. That's what's being talked about here. Those that are in the flesh are not able to, they're not powerful to please God. But the contrast to that is those of us who are in the spirit are able to please God, to honor God, to live a life that pleases God. So the second thing we see, that's, that's the spirit of freedom, the, free, the, the freedom to actually honor God and to live a life that pleases him. The second is the spirit of regeneration, the ministry of providing new life, the ministry of providing new life in verses 9 through 11. And all of these interconnect in various ways, so it's, it's hard to draw a sharp line between the spirit of freedom and the spirit of regeneration because that they, they, they mingle together in, in the Spirit's operation in our lives. But the Spirit of regeneration, the ministry of granting new life to the believer, verses 9 through 11. If you are indwelt by the Spirit, you are now not in the flesh, but in the Spirit instead. To not have Christ's Spirit is to not belong to Christ. He makes this abundantly clear in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a very significant if. If the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Again, this is all just to highlight that for the believer who has the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a, a, a I'm, I'm saved, but I don't really feel like I have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what you feel in this category. Scripture makes clear that if you are in Christ, you're in the Spirit. If you have Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit as your indwelling um, minister, ministering to you. So having the Spirit of Christ is belonging to him. 
and belonging to Christ happens at the moment of salvation. So because of the Holy Spirit, we currently have new life spiritually. This is talked about new birth or regeneration. And we will ultimately experience new life physically, resurrection. So spiritually and physically. So we, we currently experience new life, new ability, ability to actually honor God. But as we look forward to the resurrection, we'll have new life physically. It talks about your mortal bodies in verse 11, which is perhaps strange, but Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, a couple logical statements there. First, it's the spirit of God who did indeed raise Jesus from the dead. And if indeed he dwells in you, which is true of all believers, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, so this implied then, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Holy Spirit currently dwelling in you, that spirit will give you life to your mortal bodies. So talking about the resurrection, the, the new life physically that we'll experience at the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ in the past combined with the present indwelling of the Holy Spirit is proof positive that the Holy Spirit is powerful to produce new life in the believer now and resurrection of the believer in the future. Questions on either of these two so far, spirit of freedom and the spirit of regeneration. I know we're kind of flying through, but hopefully this will leave some time to, to linger on these things and unpack. But yes. What was the line on point B for spirit of freedom? The spirit of freedom gives the gives us the opposite of each of these. The spirit of freedom gives us the opposite of each of these. Any other blanks that I missed? There's more blanks on this one than normal. Yes. Opposite. Opposite. Glad we have some consistency on that one. Yes, opposite. Any other questions? All right. The spirit of mortification, verse 12 through 13. Does anyone know what mortification means? I don't have a King James Bible that reads it. Yeah, go ahead. To kill, yeah. Does anyone use the word mortification in their regular vocabularies? <laughs> well, you, you could. It's a, it's perfectly fair game as an English word. It means to kill, to to put to death. So the spirit of mortification is the Holy Spirit's ministry of sin killing, sin killing, killing sin. Mortification was a word much more um, in use in previous centuries. It's fallen out of use. I think we should bring it back because it's so helpful at capturing what we're talking about, almost more so because we don't think of sin murdering and that just sounds strange. So this is a category for sin killing. The first thing we have to say about sin killing is that we must be killing sin. We must be killing sin. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We must not be living according to the flesh. We must not be living in sin. We must be killing sin. Feel free to turn with me to Colossians 3.5, where the same term is used. Once someone's there, could someone read Colossians 3.5? Idolatry. 
Awesome, yes. So that translation says consider, or uh, another translation is reckon these things dead. Reckon yourself dead to these things. Uh, does anyone else have a different v- version that doesn't say consider or reckon? Put to death, yep. Does anyone have, I think my ESV has put to death. Does anyone have different translations there? Put to death, reckon these things, reckon yourself dead to these things. Same idea. But what sort of things are to be put to death? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. All these things are things that we must be killing. Uh, Someone have Galatians 5.24. Once you get there, could you read it out for us? Excellent, thank you. Yeah, have crucified the flesh. So another, another type of killing, this is a specific type of killing, but uh, crucifixion, same idea, putting to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh. But the second half, looking back at Romans 8, the second half of verse 13 highlights, one, certainly you must be killing sin. The second half, but if the Spirit... But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, so life, spiritual life, is bound up in obeying this command. A couple quotes, I think I included all of them for you. Um, wonderful quotes, really. Verse, uh, or sorry, a quote from John Owen on page 7 of his sin, on the mortification of sin in believers. It says, The choicest believers, so the, the best of believers, The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin, the condemning power of sin, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. So though though a believer is freed from the condemnation of sin, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1. That's why we started this section. There's no condemnation, yet the believer makes it his aim to always be putting to death the indwelling power of sin. Yes, that indwelling power is not able to condemn us ultimately and finally because Christ has paid for our sins, but nevertheless, we are to mortify, to kill these deeds of the body. Another quote, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. I see some people coming in. If you didn't get a handout, whoever has extra handouts in front of them, could you help make sure those people have handouts? I don't know where the extras went, so whoever distributed the handouts. Another quote from Charles Hodge, specifically commenting on this verse. The necessity of holiness, therefore, is absolute. We must be holy. No matter what professions we may make or what hope we may indulge, justification or the manifestation of the divine nature is never separated from sanctification. Justification is never separated from sanctification. The believer who has been justified, declared righteous, there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ is also the same believer who will be going to war with sin. And then another quote from Owen. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. 
I would encourage all of you to personally reflect on this. In your own spiritual life, in your walk with Christ, if you have experienced or maybe are experiencing a lack of vigor and energy, a lack of power, you could say, a lack of comfort and uncertainty is, is present in your walk with the Lord, then ask yourself, are you going to war with sin in your life? It's God's design that the believer who is actually still committing sin, to the degree that they're still committing sin, they're not comfortable. They're, there's doubts that are produced by that, and that's, that's good because that drives us to Christ. We shouldn't just pander to, oh, that's just the way that I am. Again, that quote, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the putting to death of, the mortification of, the deeds of flesh. We should not be comfortable with our spiritual health while we are, if we are, harboring sins, and certainly if that is a regular, ongoing occurrence. So the first thing, thoroughly established, hopefully, is that we must be killing sin, but the second, and greatly important, is that we must kill sin by the Holy Spirit. We must kill sin by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, second half of it, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Another quote, a man may easier, easier see without eyes, speak without tongue, than mortify one sin without the Spirit. It's easier to see without eyeballs than it is to put to death sin without the Holy Spirit. That's what John Owen is saying. So how does the Spirit mortify sin? Again, from this book, I commend it to you all. Pulled directly these three points. The Spirit mortifies sin by causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh and the fruits thereof and principles thereof. So the Spirit develops in us those things which are directly contrary to the deeds of the flesh. Secondly, by, by a real physical efficiency, by actually working against on the root and habit of sin for the weakening, destroying, and taking away of it. So as the Holy Spirit produces these, these fruits of grace, the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll look at next week, the, the same Holy Spirit is working directly against the roots of sin and pride and, and any of the works of the flesh also. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit mortifies sin in our lives by he brings the cross of Christ into the heart of a sinner by faith and gives us communion with Christ in his death and fellowship in his sufferings. So by, by basically bringing the gospel home to our hearts and reminding us of that daily. And that's, those are just three ways that John Owen listed that, we, uh, that the Holy Spirit mortifies sin. A question, a discussion question, which you'll hit in, in group discussion time at the end is, and I, I just encourage you to think about it now, in what way might someone attempt to stop sinning, quote-unquote, stop sinning, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit? Why is this approach to holiness destined to fail? Why is it so sure to fail when we try to go after our sin in some way apart from the Holy Spirit or when a, a non-believer who does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them attempts to put to death the deeds of the, the body? So just think about that as we... Uh, get ready to break into groups in a little while. Any questions on that? On, on number three, heading three, the spirit of mortification, sin killing? All right, number four, the spirit of sonship or adoption. 
And the reason I highlight the spirit of sonship rather than just saying that merely the spirit of adoption is because of the concept of inheritance, which is a major ramification of this, this reality, this ministry of the Holy Spirit, is that the inheritance that culturally would have been going to the sons, that's true for all believers, for all believers who are in Christ. They are adopted, but it's not merely I have a, I have a new family, but it's adopted and we each have uh, part in that sonship, which is we in, the, the inheritance, co-heirs with Christ. We'll, we'll touch on that in a little, little bit. So verse 14 through 17 talks about sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And sons, again, just to, to back up a little bit, um, for those of you that know Spanish, you know that the plural for sons, a language that has masculine and feminine, um, and I'm getting confused. Anyone know the plural for sons in Spanish? Hijos, nailed it. But that's also um, sons and daughters combined together because uh, you, cause hijas, I think, is, is um, daughters. So when you're, when you're in a group that's kind of um, mixed gender group, you would just say the, the masculine and the, for Spanish, for those of you that know Spanish and, and other languages that have genders like that, it's, it's typical. Same's true in Greek. So when you read places like brothers and sons, Sometimes that's specific to men, but typically uh, that's going to be kind of applying to both. Um, so some translations take a route where they'll want to say sons and daughters. Does anyone have a translation that says sons and daughters there? Children? Okay, yep. And that's kind of, in our English, we hear that as children. That doesn't sound male or female, but when we hear sons, we're tempted to think male. Anyone have sons and daughters or just children? All right, so anyways, that's just uh, something to highlight that uh, when we read sons, that also means sons and daughters. But again, as we highlight that inheritance aspect, I think it's important to keep that in mind. So that first point there, it is through the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry of adoption that we are able to come before God as our Father. It's through that ministry of adoption that we are able to call him Father. Verse 15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom, the the avenue through which, the means by which, we are able to cry, Abba, Father. Have you ever considered this? When you start a prayer to the creator of the universe and you address him as your father, do you realize that the very ability to address him as such is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's his ministry that allows us to approach him as father because of that adopting work, spirit of adoption. The Spirit's ministry casts out fear that we would return to slavery to sin. He produces freedom and he produces sonship. The the, the Spirit, capital S Spirit, verse uh, 16, himself bears witness with our lowercase s spirit, that we are children of God. Again, casting out fear and saying, we know we're of the family of God. We're led by the spirit which demonstrates we are part of God's family. If children, then heirs. Sorry, verse 14. Where we, for all who are led by the spirit of God, are sons of God. So that being led by the spirit demonstrates that we are of God's family. 
It is the Spirit's leading in our lives that produces this affinity to God's character, this likeness, this kind of family resemblance, you could say. And the tremendous ramification of this adoption is inheritance. We touched on it, but verse 17, if we're children, which Paul's just established we are, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, with the provision that we do indeed suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So it's just highlighting that we, we go through everything in this Christian journey, this Christian life, but the end is glorified with Christ, along with Christ, God's only begotten son that has then brought in an adopted family of sons and daughters. Truly remarkable. Some questions again to think about as we break into discussion soon. Have you ever considered that it's by the indwelling Holy Spirit that you're enabled to address God as your Father? How is this ministry of the Holy Spirit especially comforting for us? So fifthly, the, the, the fifth ministry, essential ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 is the spirit of renewal. The spirit of renewal. And this is a, a longer section, verses 18 through 25 but we are introduced to the, the creation groaning and, and longing for something to be revealed. But we realize that there's something internal going on in the believer in the midst of this. The Holy Spirit's ministry of inward renewal causes us to feel more and more, quote-unquote, you could say, out of place in this decaying and groaning world. The Spirit is producing something that's contrary to what the world experiences. As the world experiences groaning and decay and all the results of the fall, the believer is experiencing something contrary to that because internally the believer is born again, has new life. So the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit's work of renewal in our lives creates in us a yearning for when all of creation will be made new. The believer experiences eternal realities well before the substance of those realities are fully experienced. So the believer experiencing renewal is experiencing something that the world is not yet experiencing. That's why this, the world is groaning. But we know that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, which is why the creation is longing for that renewal also. But we're kind of experiencing it ahead of time. But that, that leads to a, an almost a dissonance with what we experience here. So our hope is not in this creation. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we are, we're experiencing that renewing work first, and therefore we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16 highlights this. Could someone read 2 Corinthians 4.16 nice and loud for us? Thank you, Ben. So most of us are prone to not think about this in our 20s when we're not thinking as much about the decay of our bodies. But um, that, I, mean, I don't want to assume that. Maybe some of you are very aware of that. But for all of us, sooner or later, we will become more and more acquainted with the fact that our physical bodies uh, aren't able to do everything we want them to do, and they have limitations. <laughs> we hear an amen from Russ, yeah. That is inevitable, and that's an inevitable reality that the outer self does waste away because the outer self is part of that physical creation that's not yet received the renewal of the new creation, the, the new heavens and the new earth. 
But meanwhile, the inner self, which has experienced the renewal of the Holy Spirit, is then groaning for that reality. So, Spirit of Renewal, verses 18 through 25. And then lastly, the Spirit of Prayer. The Spirit of Prayer. I wanted to call that the Spirit of Intercession, but I think the Spirit of Prayer fits better as far as what the Holy Spirit is producing. The Spirit of God knows the will of God and intercedes for us in perfect accordance with the will of God. Because the Spirit of God perfectly knows the will of God, the Spirit of God is able to perfectly intercede, be that, be that go-between. When, when we pray something that's maybe not quite lined up with the Holy Spirit's, or with the Lord's will for our lives, the Holy Spirit is able to intercede. The Holy Spirit, God himself, knows better than we do and intercedes on our behalf and, and prays better than we ever could. Even though we, we come before the Lord in humble dependence and prayer, it's the Holy Spirit that polishes those prayers before the throne and intercedes for us in perfect accordance with the will of God. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And that could be plural, weaknesses. We're, we're beset with many. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Have you ever experienced that? Ever experienced, I, I know I need to bring this matter before the Lord but I don't actually know what I need to ask for. I just know I need to bring this before him. We don't know what, how to pray as, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then these verses are ones that we're often familiar with, probably familiar with, but we often disconnect them. This is flowing right from the Spirit interceding for us, praying for us. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we often, that, that's a great verse. We love that verse, right? I mean, who has heard that verse before and appreciated verse 28? Three of us? Okay, well, I'm, I'm assuming more than that. It's, it's wonderful. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we often want to stop right there and define good however we want to define it and say that good for me equals this. And I, I can praise the Lord that um, he works all things together for good, so even though I'm going through this, it's going to work out for my good. And for me, my good means I get through this trial and everything's smooth sailing and I'm healthy again and, and so-and-so's out of my life or whatever, I'm kidding. Whatever the good is, that's what we, we import as our own definition. But what we were just talking about is how the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. And we have to read on because this next verse defines what good is, what the according to his purpose is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is good for the believer? It is conformity to the image of Christ, to the image of his Son. We were predestined for this purpose as believers. And the end of verse 28 says, for those who are called according to his purpose. The next verse tells us what the purpose is. 
So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and requests accurately when we wouldn't. When we would say, Lord, get this thorn out of my life. I don't like what it's doing. The Spirit, perfectly knowing the will of God, is able to intercede accordingly. In a sense saying, God the Father, what this Son of yours is really praying for is that he would be conformed to the image of your Son. And in perfect accord with God's will, he intercedes for us, such that perhaps maybe that thorn remains, but the Spirit intercedes perfectly in line with God's will. So, what is the will of God for us? What is the will of God for you? First Thessalonians 4, 3a. It's perhaps useful for those of you that write in your Bibles, I'd encourage all of you to be willing to do that. Um, it's right in the margins, right next to Romans 8, 28. Right, 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, verse 3, specifically 3a. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. As a reminder that when we think about what is God's will for us, what is his perfect purpose of conforming us to Christ, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3a, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what is sanctification and holiness? but conformity to the image of his Son. What is the will of God for you? It is holiness. God's will for the life of the believer is holiness. So Romans 8, 28-30 reveals the perfect will of God, his purpose for his people, and that is conformity to the image of his Son. Fundamentally, the Christian life is one of conformity. That is not something that is a popular message in the 21st century. Conformity is almost a... How, how, how dare you ask me to conform to anything? But fundamentally, the Christian life is one of conformity, conformity to Jesus Christ. This is God's will for us, and the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf for us to experience greater and greater conformity, likeness to, similarity to Jesus Christ. Often what comes to mind when we think of conformity is anything but positive. So verse so chapter 8, summarizing chapter 8, how the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, relates to our sanctification, how we grow in holiness as a result of his ministry in our lives. We looked at those six ministries, and I want to conclude our time as a, as a whole group reading verses 31 through 39 together as he, as he wraps up the great hope of our final sanctification and celebration of our justification. Verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you that we can come before you as our Father. And we thank you that you've adopted us as your sons, sons and daughters, and that we get to look forward to and long for the inheritance and the, the full renewal. We get a foretaste of it now in the renewed spiritual life that we experience, but we, we long for the day when all things are made new and when we are before you. Lord, I ask that you'd be with our time now as we break into groups and further discuss these things and apply them to our hearts. And also I ask that you'd just be with everyone that's not here today, that maybe for health reasons or for other things that have come up, just ask that you'd be with them as they're not able to join us and um, just minister to their hearts through your word as they're watching the live stream or whatever it may be. We lift the rest of this day up to you and ask that you be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.